I'm Zivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zivyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. Today's episode has been sponsored by Koyuchi, C-O-Y-U-C-H-I. Koyuchi has been crafting the finest coastal-inspired organic bedding sheets, towels, robes, and apparel, and more for a clean, environmentally conscious home since 1991. They're trying to change the way people think about buying home textiles by providing transparency, product innovation, and practices that limit harm to the environment and the people that live in it. Their transparency is being open about the supply chain, their fibers, their chemistry, and their safeties. They're really product innovators, and they're committed to organic, regenerative, and circular initiatives with the planet and the people in mind. They see themselves as disruptors in the way textiles are made and are activists for a cleaner and safer planet. And P.S., their pajamas are amazing, and they were so kind to give us five pairs of pajamas as giveaways, which we're doing on Instagram and everything else. So anyway, Kayuchi, you are the best. I love your jammies, and I'm sure everybody else will too. Thanks so much for being a sponsor. I'm excited to share this episode with the fabulous Eileen Zimmerman with all of you, but I have to say I recorded it at a live event and the microphone did not do as good a job as I might have hoped. So bear with me for the quality of this content. I know it's not up to my normal quality. Don't blame my sound guys. They did a great job. Thank you. Welcome, Eileen. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. This is a very special event because we're doing this live for the New Victory Theater, which is super exciting. (laughs) So here we go. I'm so excited to talk about your memoir, Smacked, a story of white-collar ambition, addiction, and tragedy. And I'm going to just read your bio so that everybody here knows all about you. Eileen Zimmerman is the author of Smacked, a story of white-collar ambition, addiction, and tragedy. She has been a journalist for three decades, including as a columnist for the New York Times Sunday Business section for six years. In 2017, she started pursuing a master's degree in social work. She currently lives in New York City. Welcome. Thank you. Can you please tell everybody what Smacked is about? Yes. So Smacked is the story of what happened to my ex-husband, Peter, who we were married for 20 years and divorced for, divorced and separated for about six when he died. And when he died, he was a partner in a very prestigious Silicon Valley-based law firm. We were living in San Diego and he had been acting really strange for about a year and a half. So his behavior was odd. He was late for things. He wasn't showing up for anything for our kids. He was writing texts that were incoherent. He didn't make a lot of sense in emails or actually when we would try to make plans together, he was always late or there was something that came up. And in addition to all of that, which was different than what had come before, he was also losing a ton of weight. He was losing his hair at an accelerated rate. He looked really jaundiced and then kind of gray, I noticed he had sores on his hands and on his face. And all of this was going on, and I was saying to him, like, what's wrong with you? Like, you need to go see a doctor. And he kept saying, you know, I'm fine. I'm just, I'm not sleeping. I'm working a lot. And I'm sure you all know lawyers and partners at that level. He was an intellectual property attorney. It's a lot of work, and it's a lot of stress, and it had always been. And so, for probably for reasons I don't even understand, I didn't, I dismissed all the symptoms of what were very obviously, in retrospect, drug abuse and in, injection drug abuse. And he wound up dying of an infection related to injection drug abuse. It's called infective endocarditis. And I found him because I went up to his house to figure out why I couldn't reach him for two days, why none of us could, my kids, his friends, I called his secretary. 
we just couldn't reach him. And he had been very sick the last time my son had seen him at his house. And so it was the weekend and I thought, that's it. I'm going up to his house and I'm going to drag him to the hospital. And when I got there, I found that he had died. And from that and the shock of learning that it was not a heart attack from working too hard as I thought it was, that it was actually this infection from drug abuse and that he had been addicted for you know, at least a year probably, I started to examine what happened in terms of what happened to him and how I missed it. Because I am a journalist, I'm used to asking questions, I'm a smart person, and yet I decided it was not that, whether consciously or unconsciously, and I decided it was going to be everything else, bipolar disorder, a cognitive disorder, maybe he was psychotic, you know, maybe he had an eating disorder, instead of, you know, the very obvious thing, oh, you know, he's a drug addict, like that's, he's struggling with a drug addiction is is a better way to say it. So the book grew out of that investigation and also looking at myself and my own kind of culpability and what was happening to our family, the fallout, we had two children, and then an investigation a little bit into what's going on in the white-collar professional world that you know so well, and in terms of unhappiness, depression, anxiety, substance use, and substance abuse. And it was a very sobering exploration for me, and kind of, I ended the book sort of looking at what's coming for all of our kids in the next generation of white-collar professionals and societal leaders and judges and lawyers and things like that. Wow, big explanation. No, that was great. It's a fantastic book. You have been a journalist for a long time. You researched things like a pro, (laughs) but then you turned that lens onto yourself and your own life. What did that feel like to, to look at your kids and your husband and your past and then turn it into a book? That's such a good question. It was a very humbling experience because I'm not used to writing about myself and I'm not used to kind of examining myself in that way. And if I was going to do it, I had to really be honest about my own, I guess my own, I want to say, involvement in this in some way. I mean, I was very enabling for Peter. I made it possible for him to meet dealers and shoot up all night because I was going to take care of the kids or I I took his excuses as what they, you know, the truth and took care of things. And I think he knew if he fell apart, that the kids would be okay because I'm very straight, pretty much, in terms of my substance use and my sense of responsibility. So it was very humbling, and it was also very illuminating. You know, I realized, for instance, that I have a lot of implicit biases. I consider myself very progressive. I'm studying social work now. And yet, I thought somebody that was white and wealthy and well-educated would never, you know, become addicted to drugs or any substance like that. You know, maybe he'd drink a little bit. And I was so wrong. And it really made me understand that I did have these biases and that I needed to educate myself about what someone struggling with a drug addiction looks like, which is basically like any of us. And it was really hard to look at my kids that closely and see what happened. Because when I think about the day that I found Peter, the trauma is around the body because I'd never seen someone who had died. But actually the worst part was, as you can imagine, telling my kids because they were in as much denial as me and they were young. They were 16 and 18. And that was the worst part. So having to kind of examine that and relive that and look at how I handled that was instructive and and it was good, but it was very hard and like flexing a different writerly muscle, you know. I found it interesting that day. I mean, I guess nobody knows what they will do in a trauma situation like this, but you found their dad and then decided they should come to the house and see him too, that there would be grief counselors around. Right. And that if they came, you could tell them with the support of everybody around. Right. Take me through that decision and would you do it again that way? And the way you say that question is interesting because I think... 
for so long, Peter worked so much. I mean, he wanted to make partner. He was number one in his law class. He was a really smart guy. He'd been a scientist before that. He had a master's in chemistry that he absented himself from family life. So I was so used to kind of not having a partner that when I was at the house, even though I was freaking out and there were all these people around, I thought, I can't do this alone. And I have all these people here to help me. And it felt like, okay, I'll have them come up. Because I didn't know, like you say, I didn't know how they were going to react. And my daughter also was kind of going to, going to come up to his house no matter what I said. You know, she was 18. She was frantically worried about him. And so there was the decision to tell them and the decision to tell them that it was drug abuse, which was totally the right decision now in retrospect because it relieved them of a lot of personal responsibility for not... I mean, I think as adults, we can see they could not save their father, but they really believed that they were responsible for him not surviving, that they should have taken him to the hospital. And your son even articulated that in the book. When you told him it was drugs, and he was like, oh, this makes sense, so I really couldn't have saved him. Right, right. And in the book, of course, you can't go into everything, but that kid, I mean, he was only probably 14 and a half when Peter, I think, really started using heavily. So he would see, he saw this, like, disintegration of his father and just thought his dad didn't love him as much as his sister because my daughter had just gone to college when it really right and he never said it to me until after Peter died and he's just watching this spiraling down not understanding and as you can imagine he was just a kid and then when his father dies he's thinking oh my god you know I was watching it and I didn't save him so I think understanding that it was beyond anything any of us could control huge relief and I think you're in such an interesting position I mean I am also divorced and remarried, and when the kids go with the other parent, I have read what you've written. You yeah. can't really control what they do, and you just have to trust that they'll take care of the kids because they're also the parent and they That's love them. Right. But really, you don't have legal or any sort of say in what goes on, whether it's what time they go to bed or if they're having more ice cream or oh if my they're gosh, doing drugs. <laughs> so it's like, so what, do you, what do you do? And then this is like every ex-wife's worst case scenario book. It's like, this is oh like God. the cautionary tale of divorce. It's That's like, so this true. what happens because you can't, what, I, yes. what recourse do you have? So well, like, I was thinking that I have, I have read um, interviews with you where you've talked about how hard it was to not have your kids for the night. And that was so hard. And that was so hard the whole time. And then now knowing that while I didn't have my kids, all this was going on, it was insane, Zibi. I felt like, I felt so bad as a mother and as a protector. I mean, my son told me stuff afterwards that was going on. And I remember I went away one weekend. I came back to New York. I was living in San Diego because my mom was moving into like a senior housing and she is, she's disabled. So I came back to help move her. And I said to my son, who was 16, just stay with dad. Just stay with dad for the weekend. And he was like, why can't I just stay by myself? And, you know, I'm an overprotective Jewish mother. I was like, no, stay with dad. It'll be better. And it turned out Peter was gone the whole weekend. And my son, like, was like, I, I, I could have been at home just and also was acting bizarre. And in retrospect, I thought, why didn't I just let him stay at home? Like, all those but things. But you can't beat yourself up. Right. I'm I didn't know. you got some good therapy after that. <laughs> I did. Okay. Yes. Okay. It's not your fault. It's not I'm your sure fault. I don't have to be the one to tell you. But, <laughs> but it's good to hear. It. Okay. Right. <laughs> How do your kids feel with this book? Like, did you have to talk to them mm-hmm. about, I want to, I'm thinking of writing a memoir about this. How do right. you feel if I involve you? How do they feel now that it's out? Like, how did you handle that whole thing? No, I think that's a great question. So I wrote a piece in the New York Times in 2017 called The Lawyer, The Addict, which wound up going viral, whatever that means to you, but it got about 2 million shares. So I, think that, that, I think that counts as that viral. Counts viral. Yeah. viral. I've never been like a viral person. Yeah. But I, um, I didn't, so I think the big hurdle for us as a family was that story. And that 
That had happened because I was really afraid to say anything about how Peter really died for about 18 months. Some of that was this kind of John Grisham-like fear of his firm, which was very large and powerful. I'm a writer, my ex-husband was a partner in a law firm, so the income disparity was huge. And I, I needed them to help me initially because I couldn't access any of the money that Peter had in his savings or whatever, just to function. And they were very fair and kind. And I also felt like they had kind of erased his existence very quickly. You know, within 48 hours, they packed up his office. They took him off the website. They wanted, you know, his boss asked me, when, are, you know, are you talking about a funeral? And he sent me that email less than 24 hours after Peter died. So I felt this unstated but implicit pressure to make this go away. And I kept quiet. And then I started to become really not well. I was really depressed and anxious. My hair was falling out. I couldn't eat. I just felt like I had this big, awful secret and I didn't understand why I had to keep it. And then one day I was talking to my daughter on the phone and I had just run into someone that Peter used to work with and had told again the lie that I'd been telling, which was, oh, you know, how did he die? He was 51. And I said, he was just living a very unhealthy life. You know, he was eating wrong. He was smoking. He was taking stuff to sleep. And I started to cry to my daughter and I said, I'm so sick of not being able to say the truth. And she had been very protective of her father's kind of reputation, whatever that means after you die this way. And I think she felt a lot of shame for our family. And she said, well, then why don't you say something? And so I said, I'm going to investigate this for the Times about the legal profession and I want to write about dad. And my kids felt like at that point, it had been almost two years. It was kind of a way to make meaning out of something that seemed very meaningless. I said, then what happens? Then dad dies and they basically roll over his body and the firm had like its most profitable year, I think the year after he passed away. Not that it's their fault, but I just said, you know, like there's no lesson from this. Nobody learns anything from this. And it almost felt like, I don't know why, what was the meaning of his life then? I mean, he did, he had a family, he provided for them very well, but I don't know, it just felt like maybe we could do something more with this. And they were on board. So that story was the hardest. And then when the memoir came, they were kind of already on board. They did read it. They read the New York Times story too. I tweaked it a little bit to make them comfortable and I changed their first names. And I didn't have the same last name as my ex-husband. So that kind of, you know, sort of protected In the age of Google, you can find anything, but yeah. <laughs> but I thought it was interesting what you did in the book about law and the legal profession in general, because your theory before you found out he was a drug addict was that he was being completely overworked because exactly. he was always, you know, he would go visit one child in Michigan and then have to leave because of work. And you're like, nobody else can handle this. Like, right. this thing is late. Right. Can't someone else file this whatever? There's always a work crisis. Right. So yeah. you kind of thought for a long, long time that his job was the cause of all of his issues. Exactly. Then you found out it wasn't. And then you had that moment even with the partner at the law firm when you were like, well, you're, you've been working him so hard. And he's like, he's barely even been here. Uh, yes. Which was such a turning point. It was. And I was it, like, what do you mean? He's there all the time. Yeah. And he wasn't. <laughs> no. And then you go into all the statistics. You, I feel like you put your reporter hat back on in the book <laughs> and you're like, da, 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 legal profession. And right. I felt like in a way you were not blaming the profession, but pointing out the correlations between some of these mental issues and having a high-pressure job in a law firm. So just tell me a little more about right. that. Right, and, and correlation is not causation. And Peter had a lot of other issues. He was adopted at four months, so he'd spent four months in foster care, in a foster home with other infants, so wasn't held that much. And that's a big, that can be a big problem for uh, in development. A lot of our problems as adults, I say this now having been studying social work for three years, have to do with our the attachments we make early on. His parents were evangelical, and I think there was a sense, at least from what 
I heard from Peter and what I'd felt from them that although they loved him, they kind of loved God first and then everything. And so, you know, and I think in other ways he felt, you know, le- less than he had any, I think he had a lot of depression. When I met him, I thought it was like this, you know, sexy still waters run deep, you know, 10 years later, you're like, oh my God, this guy's always depressed. Like, and, so I think there was all that, but that profession is like chronic stress. I mean, he was sleeping in his office. He was beholden to partners. You have no autonomy. And what happened was I also heard from a lot of other lawyers after the New York Times story, especially younger associates in their 30s wanting to be partners who said, I don't want to wind up like Peter and I'm afraid I will. Really depressed, really anxious, binge drinking, doing a lot of stimulants to stay awake and then having to take benzodiazepines like Xanax and Klonopin to sleep at night. Their marriages were falling apart. You know, I mean, it was a lot of men And it felt really bad. So it was really interesting to look into the profession. And in fact, American Lawyer Magazine just did, just published a week ago, their study of like lawyer mental health and well-being. And I think even though we've been talking about these issues in that profession for two years, lawyers are more depressed, more anxious, using more substances than they were two years ago. And I think it was just looked at it this morning. Almost 75% when they were asked, do you think the profession contributes to your like depression and anxiety, they, 75% said yes. So, you know, chronic stress, we know from research, can, ta- can change the brain and the dopaminergic reward system and everything. And I think, I think he was suffering from some of the cognitive and physical effects of that constant stress. But as you say, point out very well, it isn't all that. You know, he also brought a lot to that equation as well. And then you have someone, I always wonder too, what are you bringing into a job like that? You're already, like you're already predisposed perhaps to certain things because right. you're looking for a career or you're looking for that type of exactly sorry, intensity in what you're doing. Exactly. But and that intellectual intensity. And you know there is a sort of I mean he, his ego was very wrapped up in being able to say, I'm an intellectual property partner of Wilson Sansini. I mean they did Google's IPO, Apple's IPO. Larry Sansini, who's the founder of the firm, was offered the job as the head of the New York Stock Exchange. Especially on the West Coast, that really means something. And people were, you know, rightly so, impressed. He had 13 years of schooling behind him. But that arrogance can cut both ways. He also figured, I can do this recreationally and I'm not going to become an addict. I mean, I can hear him saying that, you know, and of course, those drugs are far more powerful than people think. And, and even how you couldn't believe when you when the paramedics came and everything and you're like, no, 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 it can't be drugs. Like, this house is $2 million. Yeah, like, I'm like, look at this place. Like, yeah. He went to Cornell. Yeah. They were like, yeah, okay, get over yourself. You know, like it's, right. And she was, the medical examiner said, like, we actually see a lot of this now. And that was when, as a journalist, I did think, there's a story here, but obviously I'm going to have to put that off for a few right. years because right now, you know, everything's falling apart. Yeah. Well, my takeaway is that I'm not sending my kids to law school. (laughs) (laughs) I heard so many moms say that. Like, all right, let's be the first doctors ever in our family. What do you think? Maybe. Well, maybe by the time they get there, the profession will have changed a bit. Or there does seem to be a much greater awareness in law school of law student mental health and the effects of stress. So the whole other part of the book that I found super interesting was your like your mental health and how you it basically went back and revisited how you got to this place and why you chose him, which is an interesting question. And why do you, there were, you had a quote in the book, hold on, let me find it. 
Well, first of all, you grew up in a crazy household with two sisters. And I just love this quote. I just want to read it. The place feels like a halfway house for women who lack the ability to emotionally regulate. Instead, we all just scream at one another. Okay, so that's how you grew up. So maybe you didn't. Maybe some of you recognize that. (laughs) But then you described yourself as the kind of woman who gets married because she needs health insurance, who does not expect a romantic marriage proposal, who gets married because she's afraid if she doesn't, the man she loves will change his mind and then no one will want her. Yeah, no, so I did learn, I mean, I kind of knew that about myself. Every evaluation I've ever had, like at a job or in school, has always been like, I wish Eileen had more confidence. I wish she was more self-esteem. And I've always been like, well, you know, I, I don't know where that comes from. And I think I learned by looking back that like, you know, I felt like an outsider kind of growing up. My family was Jewish and we lived in northern New Jersey. We're from the Bronx. And we were around a lot of Irish and Italian Catholics, big families. And that was like, the cool thing to be, you know, it wasn't cool to be the one who didn't celebrate Christmas. My family was kosher. I had really fat hair, you know, like I was very different, you know, and I felt that I was really underweight. So I felt think all of that. And then I had a father who threatened to send me to a skinny kid's farm if I didn't eat more, who said, you know, it's a good thing you're smart because you're not very pretty. And, and I don't think he was, I think it was like that era of father. He was like, oh, you know, I've got these three kids as if he didn't want them, you know, and he was sort of like, I've got to, you know, basically his goal in life was to get us married and out of his hair. And I felt that. And I think my parents didn't have a very happy marriage. And I saw that. And then I was attracted to a man that sort of was, a, you know, I was like, my therapist is right. I married my mother, you know, I was like, oh my, or my father, you know, but you sort of are, I think, often attracted to people. I think what I was trying to do was resolve that, was try to like, now I'll marry somebody like my parents, but I'll prove to them that I'm really valuable. And I didn't, I never got that the validation. Never works. It never works, works, right? <laughs> no, but I think we, we tend to, you know, like, I mean, I've had, I've certainly talked to therapists and they say that's a very common thing. You're, you're trying to fix it in your marriage. And of course, When Peter and I split up, I remember thinking, I'm the same age my mother was when my father left for the same reasons. And I was like, oh my God, you know, it was so obvious then. But yeah, so maybe maybe you learn in the second marriage, you'll have to tell me. Second marriages are great. (laughs) Everybody says that. (laughs) Well, tell me a little more about writing this book. How long did it take you to write? Where and when did you write it? Oh, okay, so. process. I started, I didn't do any, I started doing some of the research when I was in San Diego, but my son was a senior in high school. So I was kind of focused on figuring out his therapy and dealing with his grief and trauma. He did some of the same, we did this EMDR therapy for trauma that's in the book. And then when he left, I had already started doing some of the research for the New York Times story. I moved back to New York. I moved to up to, I live in Harlem, West Harlem and Hamilton Heights. And I did most of the writing there, and I did, uh, I had already done about a year's worth of research for the Time story, and I did another year's worth of research. I took a break from school, took two semesters off so that I could travel around the country going to high-end addiction treatment centers, talking to addiction psychologists and therapists, and also people in recovery. I also did something I think kind of unusual, very 21st century. You can't really get you know, high-placed people in finance or in law to talk openly about drug use. So I posted uh, queries on forums like Hacker News, which has about 400,000 unique hits a month. And it's for technologists, scientists. There's also, there's some lawyers on it, people in the med- medical profession, a lot of technology and hard sciences, and just said, just tell me about what you're using. I'm not judging and what you see around you. And in 10 hours, I got 600 responses. I know. And then I got a bunch of people saying, because they're in technology, they didn't trust a 
an anonymous forum. <laughs> they said, get a secure and encrypted email and I'll email you. And I did the same thing on a site called toplawschools.com, which is actually also for the legal profession. They have all these forums where attorneys talk. And I got about 75 responses, which shows you how nervous lawyers are about talking about it. And I met with some in person. I talked to some on the phone. Some I, I just took the information they provided on the forum. But that took several months, probably seven or eight months. But it was it was really interesting to get a picture, you know, in my own way. It's certainly not a systematic or scientific survey of the suffering kind of at the top. You know, and some people were like, well, why do you care? People have lots of resources, but... I just thought, like, so we're not supposed to have compassion for people. All, you know, everybody is struggling and suffering from something. Everybody has something that is they're struggling with that becomes addicted. So I felt like, sure, we should have compassion for people from the top of the socioeconomic ladder down to the bottom, no matter what color, you know. And so I tried to focus in on what's happening sort of at that top. Does that contribute to your social work degree? It actually, it's been very, I mean, ironically, I think I was always kind of interested in social justice. I had volunteered in San Diego with this great school for homeless children. It's like the largest in the country. Most of them were Mexican. Some were African-American, some were African. And I was politically, I'd volunteer. So I sort of felt like I was already kind of in that world. But yes, I did learn a lot about, I learned about attachment theory. I learned a lot about, it helped me understand Peter's kind of trajectory and also what's going on in the larger society. And what's coming next for you now? Would you want to write any more? Do you think this is like, this was your thing and now you want to go help people? <laughs> you know, I do, I do. I think I'll always be a writer. That's what I, it's yeah. the way I meet and go through the world. So I'm hoping that I will write another book. So there'll be something second. I don't know next. I'm not sure what that is. But it'll be informed by social work because I'm really interested in those issues, like the bigger issues of you know, what it means to be human, what it means to be here and now at this point in this country at this time, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so I feel like if I can work part-time in social work and also write, that would be, that's the ideal. (laughs) Do you have any advice for aspiring authors? I would say the thing that helped me most was reaching out to people that I knew were better at this than, you know, and had a lot more experience and asking them for help. One of my good friends is someone, I think you know, Adrian Brodeur, who has a terrific memoir called Wild Game, and she was a huge help to me. She also lived like nine blocks from me at the time. And so we would often talk about structure and form and also just the angst that comes with putting yourself out there. And I had a, I had a great editor at Random House, and it really helped me to talk to other writers that had already done this and ask them like very basic things, like how did you structure it? Did you use an outline? When did you write? You know. So that's, that would be my advice, is seek advice from those who know better than you do. Well, thank you so much for thank coming Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. <laughs> You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Thanks again to Kaiuchi for sponsoring this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com.